I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and in today's episode, I chatted with the legend, Mr. Mike Boyle. He is, uh, I'm sure most of you guys have heard of him if you're into the whole body movement strength conditioning reality. He is or was the the uh, strength coach for U.S. women's Olympic teams in soccer and ice hockey, the Boston Bruins, the Boston Red Sox, no big deal. Uh, really, really great conversations. Been in the field for over 30 years, been rocking out and just been doing great work in today's episode. Uh, pretty cool. We got into some things that Mike and I happened to kind of sort of disagree on, which was always nice. I really greatly appreciate getting a variety, a poo-poo platter of opinions and perspectives on the show. And uh, really, really good stuff. Got into squatting, got into, I don't remember what we got into actually. <laughs> recorded the episode a little bit ago. But uh, really, really good. I hope you guys enjoy it. What I want people to do in that case, like with you, like we say, I'm doing things completely different, is I always say, go back. Because what I found with me, sometimes when I went back to my why, I realized that my why was because somebody else had told me not to do it. Thank you so much for checking out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you find hundreds of free videos on self-care and functional movement, the self-care kit, hollow foam roller, screw-on lids, two different size myofascial release balls, heavy-duty elastic band, door anchor, all that fits inside for your convenience. So you have the whole multiverse of self-care practices wrapped up inside of a tube. Um... Thanks so much for iTunes reviews. I really greatly appreciate that. Appreciate that. I've gotten several this week that were just great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That helps the, the Google gods or the iTunes algorithms or however that works. So that's awesome. Thanks for supporting the show in that way. And uh, quote. I got a quote from Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. I spent last night and this morning, probably like three or four hours, just observing Mr. Neil. He's just rad. I would highly recommend everybody checking him out. Uh, quote from Neil. You could also ask who's in charge. Lots of people think, well, we're humans. We're the most intelligent and accomplished species. We're in charge. Bacteria may have a different outlook. More bacteria live and work in one linear centimeter of your lower colon than all the humans who have ever lived. That's what's going on in your digest digestive tract right now. Are we in charge or are we simply hosts for bacteria? It all depends on your outlook. Um, outlook, outlook's everything. So pretty interesting stuff when we think of who am I? What are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What are my intentions? Am I just being driven by some parasite or bacteria? Or um, do I have free will? What does free will mean? Just interesting questions. I don't have any answers. Um, thanks so much for utilizing the Amazon portal on the website. Por favor, anybody go out and uh, bookmark that page every time you use Amazon. Hopefully, from this point forward, 
uh, you make any purchase on there, I get like six and a half percent off of that purchase towards the podcast. Helps support this show, helps uh, support my life, and greatly, greatly appreciate it. Keeps the show sponsor free, and uh, that's that. I think that might be it. I think we might be ready to do this thing, Mr. Mike Boyle. Uh, oh, what other thing? I <laughs> I listened to a previous episode in the, in the past, like last year or whatever, and I just want to apologize for being uh, just like, I think just insecure is the big thing, uncomfortable, which translated into talking too much. Maybe you think I'm talking too much right now. Um, but then also, what else? Just being like a tool. I just sound like a tool. So I wonder how I'm going to look at myself from today hearing this, you know, whatever conversation a year, two years, three years later. Hopefully, I think I'm doing great, but <laughs> if you listen to any of the previous episodes in the past, um, man, what a tool I am. I apologize for that. All right, here we go. Back to the show, Mr. Mike Boyle. Align Podcast. And then educating people on how to work with themselves is the big thing. So empowerment of other people. We're all our own psychologists and doctors and physical therapists. And then we can go out, seek more help. But we need to have a little bit more autonomy, I think, with ourselves. And that's kind of, yeah. So do you have any... I do basically the same thing, so... I know. That's why... (laughs) That's why you're here. Uh, do you have anything in particular you'd like to get into? I have a, a variety of potential directions that we can go. I usually try to throw all that away. but um, No, I, I have whatever you want to do. The only thing, I just wrote a new book, so if I get to plug the book at the end, that's cool. So. Yeah, you can plug it anytime you want. What is, what is, what's the most recent book? Uh, it's called, um, oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm trying to think. It's called The New Functional Training for Sports. The rewrite of the original right. 2004 Functional Training for Sports. But it did take me a second to come up. That yeah. that was not a good commercial. Right. <laughs> We're keeping that, by the way. That was great. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I, I think that's the beauty of podcasting. So. Yeah, I love it. Well, cool, man. You So your daughters are playing playing hockey. Are you a hockey player? I was not a hockey player, nope. But my, my daughter, you know, I, I grew up. My father was a basketball coach. I was a swimmer. I had no hockey background whatsoever but when i went to boston university if if you follow hockey at all which you may or may not um boston university we had four guys on the 80 olympic team so if you watch the movie miracle Mm -hmm. uh, like three of the main characters were boston university hockey players so hockey at boston university is a big deal and when i went to work at boston university i quickly figured out that it was a big deal and started working with the hockey players and so I did that for I mean, twenty some odd years. Wow! Uh, I I, um, I played hockey for my whole like childhood. So I played hockey for like twelve years, and then essentially once I had to pay for ice fees and pads and all that stuff, I stopped stopped playing. <laughs> but, but I love so, the sport. Are you Northern California? I'm close. I'm in Oregon, so middle middle Oregon. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm recording right now. By the way, I, oh that's uh, fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So are you are you coaching with with the hockey at all? I work with our women's Olympic ice hockey team right now. So that's the only thing. And then I have – I've got a bunch of NHL, AHL guys that we're training this summer. Yeah. But sort of my, my like year-round – my year-round coaching responsibility is with our women's Olympic program. I'm curious how you've evolved as a coach over the years. You know, because it's, it's kind of like a nebulous job. I mean now maybe there is like specific – I'm sure there is specific coach training. But it's kind of something I think that you kind of – create on your own to be to be a really good coach is that like what's the evolution been like for you 
Well, I think that's absolutely the case in the sense that I started out in athletic training. I think when my father was a coach, so I always think that's sort of the, the beginning of that process. My father was an All-American football player in college in the like post-World War II era. So he came out in the GI Bill and played at Boston University and then went on to actually be a good basketball coach, not a football coach, which was interesting, you know, because he was an All-American football player, never played basketball. But the high school that he went to needed a head basketball coach, and he became the head basketball coach and won a couple of state championships in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I grew up going to practice and kind of going through that whole process. So um, it was very natural for me to gravitate towards that field. But I, at that time, I decided I wanted to do athletic training because the sort of sports medicine side of it intrigued me more. But relatively quickly, I realized not, well, probably after three or four years, but there was no such thing as a strength and conditioning coach in 1977 when I went to college, or at least if there was, I had never heard of one. But suddenly during the process of the uh, kind of late 70s, early 1980s, this started to evolve where suddenly it was one of these things where you think, wow, there's people who are getting paid to do this. There are people that are getting paid in this kind of strange little area that's evolving, involving weight training and sports medicine and all this stuff together. And so I just kind of naturally gravitated towards that and moved my way over and started um, basically making myself a strength and conditioning coach. Yeah. What's, are there some apparent things that you, if you could go back to yourself, like one, like early coaching 20 years ago, is there some obvious mistakes that you're making or is there something that like, what have you learned over the years? Well, it's I mean, I, I actually just wrote, I don't know if you've read, but the uh, thing called the Players Tribune started doing these letters to my younger self. And so I did one of those just because I thought it was pretty interesting. I read one that one of my players had written, one of the girls that I work with had written this letter to her younger self. I said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do that. And so I sat down. And um, I think in some ways the the problem, I would have done things differently, but we had no direction whatsoever. And I was actually very, very lucky in the sense that one of the things I wrote in the letter was, you know, kind of some of it was like, don't change a thing. You you fortunately, uh, you had these what I call outliers moments. If you've ever read outliers, outliers sort of explains why things happened the way they happened. I show up at my dormitory. I believe my freshman year, I walk into Gula College, Springfield College, and there's a large kind of burly-looking guy who obviously lifts weights who's at the front door greeting everybody. Now, this guy ends up being a guy named Mike Wojcik, who, again, if you follow football, Mike has more Super Bowl rings than anybody in the National Football League. He has six Super Bowl rings. He was the strength and conditioning coach for the Dallas Cowboys for a long time, got three rings there, then went, ended up in New England, got three rings with the Patriots, now is back in Dallas again looking for ring number seven. But he was my dorm director. I just happened to wander into the dorm, and here's this guy who's sort of going to end up being at the epicenter of strength and conditioning. He was at that time the, the field event coach for track and field. And I relatively – I was I've always been lucky in the sense that I think I've been a little bit intuitive and a little bit of an early adopter, and that's really helped me. So I started looking at these track guys and thinking, these track guys know how to train. Hmm. They're they're pretty smart. And so I started kind of hanging around the track guys. I started lifting with the track guys. And then I started competing in powerlifting more 
I think because I always say everybody starts out as a stupid meathead who wants to show everybody how strong they are. Yeah. And so, and you know, and I, I wrote, I actually wrote a series of articles on evolution of a strength coach. I say you start out, everybody actually starts out even at the, low, the lowest level is the bodybuilder. You know, the guy who doesn't really care what his legs look like and it's yeah. just sort of thinking about building a big, you know, guys like, how do I get a big chest? You know, how do I get big arms? And you're like, you're like the lowest form of life in the weight training world because yeah. you literally figured out that you have these kind of dormant anterior muscles and if you actually work them, they respond right. and you kind of get hooked. Yeah. And, and then from there, you realize that as sort of this little wimpy bodybuilder who doesn't squat, you basically get no respect in the gym. So you start to think, okay, I've got to start to, to try to lift bigger weights, which I obviously can do with my lower body. That becomes another one of those big conclusions that you come to thinking, wow, I can squat way more weight than I can bench press. Right. And then you think, oh, maybe I'll enter a powerlifting meet and show everybody how strong I am kind of deal. And so I went through all of that process, which I don't think I would change that much because I think it's what made me the sort of experienced coach that I am now at 56 years old because I always tell everybody, the big advantage I have on you is the number of mistakes I've already made. Right. And so I've got, you know, at 56, I've got about 35 years of trial and error under my belt, which puts me, I mean, not even, you might not even be 35 years old yet, but I've got that much uh, just trial and error, screwing things up, going out. I always said I hurt myself, I hurt some other people. I did a lot of really dumb stuff. But part of that was that made me evolve and understand Injury prevention it made me evolve and understand smart training and made me evolve. So now when I look at people and think these people are complete idiots, I'm really basing that on experience. Not I look at it and think it's not an opinion. Mm. <laughs> it's it's a fact. Because like, I already did it. I tried all these stupid things that you're going to try on people already. And and the vast majority of them won't work and people will get hurt. And, and then you'll go back. Hopefully you go back to the drawing board. The problem with us is in strength and conditioning, sometimes people get stuck in that moment where they can't get away from powerlifting or they can't get away from Olympic lifting or they can't get away from bodybuilding. I mean, and that's probably, you're like at that face of like, yeah, you're right. Because you see a lot of those people in your business who come in and and think like, you know, I don't want to stop squatting. And I'm, I kind of look at people and think, well, if you don't want to listen to what I'm going to tell you to do, then we're all wasting our time here because – you're not going to get better. You're not going to feel better. What's your sense with the stopping of squatting? I, I agree with everything you said until you said stop squatting. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Bi- oh, no. <laughs> Bi- bilateral bar on your back squatting is just stupid. Mm. Tell because me Because it has no purpose. What, like when you think about it, analyze it. What is the purpose of that exercise? You know, and then you get into like all the internet macho, oh, really big legs, really huge weights, anabolic effect, whatever. And I'm like, who gives it? It's all unilateral. You should be. You should be split squatting. You should be one leg squatting. You should be doing things that actually will relate anatomically to life. One of the big light bulbs for me was when I first started to understand functional anatomy. I remember going in the 90s to a Gary Gray course and Gary Gray was talking about functional anatomy and I remember sitting there just nodding my head like, wow, this guy's absolutely right. I never thought about it this way, but he's absolutely right. And that was when I started to look at things like, and again, I was an ex-powerlifter. So, I mean, to say I'm not going to squat, but when you start looking at injury patterns and realizing that, like in our case, 20% of our athletes, give or take, 
would develop some sort of back problem from squatting. That was my statistical analysis of three to 400 athletes and having all of them do back squats. You start looking at that and thinking that's 60 to 80 kids who have some sort of back problem as a result of loading their spine. And you start thinking, I always talk about the spine doesn't like compression. It's got discs for a reason. And the, the reason isn't to support six or seven or 800 pounds on a bar on your back. Like that's not what they were put in there for. And it doesn't like torque. Those discs are not made for rotary action. So it doesn't like that kind of helicopter effect that happens in a big heavy back squat sometimes when somebody starts to just, they're thinking, oh, I only rotated a little. And it's like, well, you only needed to compress that system a little and rotate a little in order to rip one of those discs. You don't need to really go a lot. You just need to go a little. And it doesn't like shear. It doesn't like the load to be up on your neck with the pivot point down at your hips. There's all these things that we know from a biomechanical standpoint that are not back friendly. And they're all contained in, in squats. <laughs> what, about over, what about overhead squats? Like I mean, snatch position. If you actually do have neutral spine, you do have the hip hinge, you do have the knees out, you do have arches in the feet, and you are cultivating those, that. It's like... Uh, you know, if you look at that and think you've listed, you know, four caveats that most people aren't going to have. I don't I don't particularly love overhead lifting, period, for non-athletes. You know what I mean? Like my athletes, my athletes will snatch, um, but they won't overhead squat. Our non-athletes will not overhead squat or snatch because I think most people it's dangerous. are not capable of getting their arms up over their head without performing some sort of compensatory activity. Right. Then you get into structure, glenohumeral joint. Most people, I mean, the glenohumeral joint, actually the glenohumeral joint doesn't wear out. The rotator cuff wears out via attrition. It runs out because that rotator cuff is being consistently abraded under the acromial arch. Overhead lifting leads to that. If we think about, again, if we think anatomically, the least friendly position for the shoulder is abducted and externally rotated, right? Overhead squatting is abducted and externally rotated. So we're taking the least shoulder-friendly position that we can find, and then we're trying to load in it. So these are all the reasons, as I said, that when I look at the things that I do, and, and obviously you're a bright guy, I can discuss everything that I believe it scientifically, anatomically, experientially, and tell you this is why we don't do certain things. Yet the interesting thing for us if you can see some of the videos of our athletes, people will come in and they'll be almost shocked how strong our athletes are because they think, because they hear me talk, oh, he doesn't do squats. You know, his athletes can't be strong. And I'm like, well, you should come in and see. Like we just said, I just watched one of our guys today split squat about, about 300 pounds for three reps on each leg. And then you get into the whole idea of bilateral deficit and you think he might actually be I mean, not it might actually. He's using heavier loads unilaterally. He's capable of heavier loads unilaterally than he is bilaterally. Can you break down for people what a split squat is exactly if there's somebody that's trying to visualize that? And split sure. squat, basically, I always say, I hate the term stationary lunge because stationary lunge is like jumbo shrimp. It's a, it's a redundancy. Mm -hmm. But most people would envision split squat as stationary lunge. Right. We would do rear foot elevated split squats, which again, other people call them Bulgarian lunges. And I'm like, Bulgarian lunge. It's not Bulgarian and you don't, you don't move. So how can it be a Bulgarian lunge? But those are the names that people would recognize these lifts by. Mm -hmm. But like today when we were talking about the kid with 300 pounds, he was 
doing what most people would recognize as a Bulgarian lunge or a Bulgarian split squat. I always said I never use Eastern European names because I feel like I was doing these things long before the, anybody gave them Eastern European names. So I'm not going to give the Russians or the Bulgarians or the Romanians or anybody credit for these exercises. Right. When we were doing them in the 70s and 80s before we had any contact with these people. But you didn't give it a name yet. Well, so my, my thing with, with the squatting is I agree with you. Uh, most people don't have the capacity to actually go through that functional range of motion with it, which then it does become dangerous and you are starting to exacerbate negative patterns and then eventually you're going to, the rut gets deeper and deeper and you will blow out. But if we can start to cultivate those patterns through, you know, whatever it is, self-care practices, foam rolling, balls, bands, functional movement, yoga, whatever it is to start to cultivate that hip hinge, cultivate that neutral spine, really be able to find a stack from your head down to your feet. If you can start to kind of like I say, like slow down to speed up. The problem is most of us just speed up to eventually burn. Right. But my problem is I would look at that and I would agree with you 100 percent. And then I would give you the simple question. Why? <laughs> okay. Why would you try? Because people say, oh, you got to be able to do that to go to the bathroom. I'm like, okay. So you got to be able to bodyweight squat. Yes. I'm with. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You no. you. And I'm a hunt. My problem is you got to be able to bodyweight squat. But how did we get from bodyweight squat to 800 pound squat? It's just kind of starts to be circus. You know, but it, but sometimes it's like, why do we stand, do one-armed handstands? Why do we do handstands at all? It's kind of, do, why do we make spaceships? Right. But you know? that, that's, <laughs> we don't need to do it. Right. right. And that's my, so my thing is, let's pick the things that we do need to do or the things that are going to be applicable yeah. for us. And then let's start to work on those things, those things that are contributory. So the last talk that I did, I did this uh I've done this series of lectures that, that we've sold on the internet that have been really successful called Functional Strength Coach. So we're up to Functional Strength Coach 6. Functional Strength Coach 6 was called Start With Why, and it was all based on the Simon Sinek book, Start With Why. And so everything you have to start, I think what happens to us as strength and conditioning professionals, as personal trainers, as therapists, whatever it is, is we start with what? And then we try to work our way backwards because we already have an idea of what we want to do. Like I want to do kettlebells. I want to do powerlifting. I want to do CrossFit. And it's like why, 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 why? What I want you to do, I operate from the why standpoint. So I look at – so let's just say my the hockey players that I train, whether it's my own kid or her team or the Olympic girls or these NHL guys. I start looking, okay, what do they need to be able to do? Basically, if we look at the bioenergetics of the game, they need to be able to go really fast for about 45 seconds, and then they need to be able to rest for somewhere around a minute, 30, or two minutes, 15 seconds, somewhere in that category. We understand that. They need to be able to tolerate collisions at incredibly high rates of speed. So when I start looking at that stuff, I'm like, now I know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and then I need to work out from there and say, okay, what am I going to do? In other words, what exercises am I going to select? And then how am I going to do those exercises? Senek in the book calls it the golden circle. But in the golden circle, why is the center of the circle? So I think that's what we've always got to look at. And that's what I tell everybody. I always ask everybody now, like, what's your why? Mm -hmm. You tell me. I like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear your what. I don't, oh, I really like squats. I really like kettlebells. That's a what. I don't care about that. I want to know your why. Like, why are you? Why have you chosen? If you said to me, it's I. I always use I'm like the king of absurd analogy. 
And so I'll usually use the analogy of some. It would be like if you met, say you want to do some work. I can see your office right now in the picture, right? And you said, yeah, I want to do some renovations in here. And a guy shows up, the contractor, and he just has a chainsaw. <laughs> and, you know, you said, well, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe putting some countertop over here, maybe putting some cabinets. The guy's like, I can start tomorrow. And you looked and said, yeah, but all you have is a chainsaw. And he's like, yep, I do everything with the chainsaw. You know, all my fine cabinetry work, everything, no matter what I do here, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cut the drywall with a chainsaw. I'm going to cut the wood with a chainsaw. I'm going to make the cabinets with a chainsaw. You'd be like, you can't really do that. Like, you, you can't be the chainsaw guy. Right. It's like seeing a, a knee surgeon for your knee pain that could be a product of flat feet or valgus knees or lack of, you know, hip extension or whatever, whatever it may be. But it's like seeing, you know, the guy, but it's like seeing a surgeon. I said, you only see a surgeon if you want one thing. Yeah. Surgery. I always tell people, if you don't want surgery, don't go to an orthopedic surgeon three times. Right. Because <laughs> if you third time, you will be scheduled for surgery. You'll go the first time, and he'll say, go to physical therapy and take these anti-inflammatories. And then you'll go to the second time, and he'll inject you with an anti-inflammatory. And then the third time, he'll say something like, we should go in and take a look around. And he's not talking about visiting your apartment. Yeah. He's, you know, so, I mean, these are the things that, that we deal with day in and day out in our field. Yeah. Well, so that the question of why is something that I I ask every single person that I work with and it's I think if we can get to that point of why are you moving in general? Why do you wake up in the day? Like why are you going to the gym? Like if if you don't really have a real bearing of what the source of of all this is, then you're kind of just aimlessly doing repetitions and I it's not sustainable for one thing. You know, so what's your why? <laughs> you know, like, can you break down kind of like what? Yeah, I always, you know, my why now at this stage of the game is I want to make an impact on the field, the the big picture part of the field. Yeah. I want to teach coaches. I want to educate coaches. And then sort of in the, in the sort of micro part, I want to help the people that I, that we work with every day that we train because we've got a huge adult population now that we're working with that are I, more now than ever before, like half of our clients are not athletes. I want people to feel better. I want people to, to get, get out of bed. Because that's one thing I was asking them, like, how do you feel when you get out of bed? Because yeah. Yeah. that to me is the acid test for is your training program working or not. If someone says to me, oh, you know, look at, look at my abs. Like, how do you feel when you get out of bed? And they're like, oh, I can't move for the first 15 minutes. I can't tie my shoes. I'm like, well, then your training program sucks. You know, I don't care what you look like. The program's brutal, and eventually you will not be able to follow it. And I think that's what people – I'm constantly talking to people about this idea of – like you said, well, what do you want to do? But as people get older, I'm like, cross shit off your list. You know what I mean? Like don't get a knee replacement so you can play tennis. This is what you know the conversation I'm having with people all the time. Well, I'm going to get my knee replaced because I like to play tennis. And I'm thinking, why don't you keep your original knee and stop tennis? That would be a way better deal because this idea of simply replacing body parts is actually – it's like um, urban legend, you know, medical myth that you can just go in. I would say to somebody, you realize when they – you know, when you get a knee replacement, they cut your leg off in two places. Like, you know that, right? And they kind of look at you like, really? I'm like, yeah, how do you think they replace your knee? You know, the only way they replace your knee is to cut your tibial condyles off and your femoral condyles off. Like there's no other way to replace your knee. And then they bang a new piece in 
And then they're like, oh, you're good as new, you know, except, you know, and people are like, oh, will I be able to play tennis? Will I be able to do the agility ladder? I'm like, probably not. The, the thing I, I know that you deal with this as well is I get I get people on a, a regular basis that have knee replacements or hip replacements or you know whatever replacement, and what they don't receive any education on is the the why in the first place. Why did you get that replacement? You know what was the movement patterning and that repetition of these of these dysfunctional patterns that puts you into the point where you're all of a sudden your knees on fire and you're smoking out your meniscus or whatever it may be. You know it's like we just replace the knee. And then we let go of all the neuromuscular connections of like, how did we get here in the first place? You know? I tell people it's like it's like going to an auto mechanic and him saying that, you know, you got a flat tire. I'll weld another one on. Sure. <laughs> right. You're like, um, you know, you're, you know, and that's the problem with the from the body standpoint. We don't see the illogical nature of this. Like, like, like you said, why is my knee like this in the first place? Yeah. But one of the things is, and I always I wrote an article. I, I write a lot. Years ago, I wrote an article called Only One Body. And in this article, I basically said, I used the premise that, hey, if your parents had given you one car when you were 16 and a half years old and you got your driver's license and said, I need you to understand that this is it. There is no other car. You get a lot, you know, it's like a crazy movie, you know, Hunger Games or something. You get one car and you got to make it last a lifetime. People would be incredibly good to that car. Yet in the body world, People don't realize that they've made the same deal. That you get like one body with potentially limited mileage. And one of the things that I said is that replacement parts are expensive and they never work like the original equipment. And you can get it, you know, people like, oh, I'm going to get a shoulder replacement. I'm like, you realize that like that thing's never, it's basically going to hold your arm on, but it's never going to work like the original one worked. And people do it a lot of times to get out of pain. So when I talk to people, because I do end up, I hate to say counseling because maybe I don't know if that's the right word, but I do talk to people a lot about their injury situations. And one of the things I always say to them is, does it stop you from sleeping? Yeah. yeah. Because once it stops you from sleeping, you do have to consider some sort of intervention because when your sleep pattern goes, everything goes with it. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing, you know, with backs, you know, people, you know, with backs, it doesn't affect your bowels. You know, and that's if you're suddenly realizing that you're incontinent, it's like, okay, it's time for back surgery. Yeah, but if you can't sleep four or five hours, that's also the time when you may have to go the conventional medical route. There's a, uh, I heard recently that, I don't think this is like originally where, maybe maybe it is, but the, the, the derivative of coach comes from stage coach, I think. I heard this. You know, and so it's like we pick people up where they're at and then we drop them off where they're going. You know, but every single person's at a different place. And so you're saying like, you know, I don't know what to, my, my term. I, I personally like coach when I draw that analogy to it. You know, it's like every single person, they're trying to get somewhere. They just don't really maybe have the right information. So all they do is just repeat these broken patterns over and over again because it's just habituality. But our job, your job as a coach, is to be able to you know, pattern recognition, see what they are, empathize, and be able to guide them in a way that they're able to understand and, and drop them off. Yeah. Well, actually, I'll give you the derivation of that. Actually, yeah, um, the, book is, <laughs> the book is called Aspire, which you should really buy. It's an awesome book, there and it's go. all about the derivation of words. Oh, and cool. In Aspire, Coach actually is a city in, I believe, it was at that time Czechoslovakia, but I'm not 100% sure. And Coach, they made, as you said, stage coaches. They made coaches that took people from place to place, and they became, they were named by the town that they were made in. 
Mm. That's the derivation of the word. Mm. So it's actually a city. And, but Aspire goes through a whole series of those, like uh, explaining where these words came from. One of the words I remember all the time, because it's the word encourage. If you think about encourage, core is heart in French. So encourage is to give heart to. And it's so that that whole book aspires to, to takes like there's probably 20 chapters and each chapter is about a word. But coach is one of the words. And, and you're pretty close on the dev, you know, on the, the thought process. Yeah, so we get it. The, 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 with, the, with the bringing the heart. And I want to come back to down to like some grounded, you know, physical therapy related talk. But uh, with the bringing the heart, I think that's something that we lack in our movement practice and our exercise and our working out. You know, I like like the working in instead of working out. You know, it's like bringing if we can get to that heart place with our movement practice, then we found a why. You know, but most people, we just have a really small, isolated 45 minute of like working out and then the rest of the day is just a bunch of shit, you know, but if you can really become fascinated by, by yourself, by your movement, then you're starting to instill that heart into your movement. Does that sound crazy? My, no, my I don't think it's crazy at all, but no, I think that, and that's where you realize it's so much more like what we do. I always say we're the best as strength and conditioning coaches or personal trainers or whatever we've decided to call ourselves. We're the best medical professionals out there because we have the greatest probability of changing somebody's life. Hmm. Because like I said, you look in in your business, you've probably taken people out of pain. You've had people who were in in pain every day and suddenly they're no longer in pain. That changes your entire outlook on life. Like when you think about the gift that you give them by taking away their pain, and that's one of the things I tell the guys and girls that work for me all the time is that if you can make people feel better, you will never lack for income. Hmm. There will be a steady stream of people coming to you because somebody else said, well, this guy, you know, that's what people always said. Well, you know, I go to boil, and that's the difference in working out. People say they come to boils because they feel better. Yeah. And I've used this to CrossFit people get mad at me, but I always say the idea, if the idea of a workout was to get sore, right, then I could take you outside and beat you up with a baseball bat. <laughs> and I could make you really sore. You know, you could tell me what muscles you wanted to be sore. And I'm like, okay, I'll target those. You know, you want your quads to be sore? Okay, stand there. I'll give you a couple of whacks right in the front, a couple in the back, a couple on your ass. You know, next day you're going to get up, you'll be crippled. You won't be able to move. But you wouldn't consider that a good exercise prescription. Hmm. Yet to go and shit kick some guy, you know, in a workout where somebody, you know, does, you know, whatever, a thousand lunges or kipping pull-ups or some other stupidity. And then comes back and explains to you, oh, I was really sore. I'm like, whatever. Like that's that's an unfortunate byproduct that should happen. About every three to four weeks, you should be sore. So you you mentioned that that you don't usually prescribe like Olympic lifts or some more complex lifts to adults or people that have already kind of like frozen over into forward hip posture or hyperkyphosis or you know fill in the blank. Do you do any type of rehabilitatory work in order to get people to recover those? You can call them like indigenous movement patterns. We're con- I mean, that's probably half of what we do. What's that look like? We're always rolling. We're always stretching. We're always working on thoracic extension. Because the idea is, I'd love to think we can reverse all that, but I'm not so sure. I think some of the changes in adults is bony. So I don't know if you can reverse bony change. As you said. You know, we've had some incredible changes from a kyphotic standpoint with people posturally, but I don't know if you can ever completely change it in somebody who's in their 40s or 50s because they start to adapt. I mean, those the bones, you know, Wolf's Law of Bone, right? Wolf's Law of Bone 
the basic illustration of Wolf's Law of Bone is that if I fracture my tibia, shatter it, and they remove my fibula and place it where my tibia was, which is an operation that they do, within a six-month period, my fibula will resemble a tibia because bones adapt to stress. And so the problem with some, as I, my problem is, some people, I think you get too much water under the bridge and suddenly you've got hips that have changed and acromion processes that have changed and um, you know thoracic and cervical vertebrae that have changed to the point where I look and think, I can make that person much better, much more functional, much more able to move. I don't know if I can make them an Olympic lifter now. So I think that's the difference. But so, you know, we do mobility work every day. Like our, if you look at our workout structure, foam rolling is always first. I always say tissue preparation is first. Then we will stretch. Tissue lengthening is second. Then we will do our mobility work. And we're using some of Andrea Spina's stuff. We're using, you know, Greg Cook stuff. We're using Stuart McGill stuff. We're using all kinds of different things from a mobility standpoint. But I'm going to try to restore, as you said, the mobility, that ability to hinge, the ability to squat, the ability to, to, to single leg squat, the ability to get their arms back up over their head. We may do some Shirley Sarman stuff, you know, wall slides, floor slides. Like there's so much stuff that we're doing, but the difference is, you know what we do? Tell me. Tell me. We call it warm up. Right. And so people think, they don't realize, most of our adult clients have no idea that they're going through this sort of targeted therapeutic process. They think they're warming up. But the reality is we're trying to get, uh, and I love Sarman's quote, but one of the things that Sarman talks about is trying to get the right muscle to move the right joint at the right time because that's essentially what good movement is. When you think about good movement is that, okay, if I decide that I'm going to bend over, I bend over from my hips and that movement is basically resisted by my glutes and hamstrings lengthening as I go forward. Whereas with most people, if they decide to bend forward, more than likely, it could either be you know, an uncontrolled valgus collapse of their knees where they go into internal rotation, and that's then accompanied by flexion of their lumbar spine, flexion of their atic spine, flexion of their cervical spine. And they would look at that, I would say, like, there's a difference between a hip hinge and a melting candle. But the average client has no idea about the difference between a hip hinge and the melting candle. And our job is to teach them, hey, one of these is really good movement, as you said, whether it's hinging, whether it's squatting, whether it's a single leg pattern, whether it's being able to do a push-up. You know, where's my head? Where's my core? Being able to plank, being able to side plank. There's all, you know, so then there's all these stability things that we're doing. And then, you know, you, you've got this, it's like you have this dance of mobility and stability. And that's why, like, I'm not a yoga fan because I feel like yoga is just, get more mobility and so i'm looking in like i know i don't you know that's why i like i don't know how much you've looked at the postural restoration institute stuff the pri stuff but i love the pri stuff because they say okay at a certain point we only want this amount of mobility there's a certain point from a mobility standpoint where it becomes not beneficial and actually becomes damaging and suddenly you've created incredible joint laxity or you've 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 created rotation at joints that aren't supposed to have rotation. So we've got to be so controlled and we need to know what we need to get and where we need to get it. And then we need to know where we need to get it from. Yeah. Yeah. Sarman uses the term relative compensatory flexibility, which I love. 
And I think that's what a lot of people do. They figure out a way to do something that looks like what you wanted them to do, but very often is not. So it's, I'm writing that down. So my mind's drifted away for a second. Uh, but I, I had, there was some, it's, it's the lack of integration with mobility. That's the issue. You know, so it, having mobility is great, but if we don't, if we don't connect that to the chassis, you know, it's like before you get into your appendicular, your arm, leg, all that stuff, are you organized through your midsection? Do you have actually a point to lever off of that? Or are you just blowing out that shoulder joint and then, you know, going into hyperlordosis in the lumbar spine and just going into this broken hypermobile position? But I think right. we can explore that's, mobility. That's my criticism of yoga most of the time is that I was doing it wrong. Yoga. Yoga is watched, generally not taught. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? In terms yeah. of yeah, you yeah, go yeah. into a room and I always said it's almost like you're watching a movie but and then trying to act out the movie and you've got one really good actor in front or actress yeah. and then a bunch of really bad actors or actresses in the back who are still intent on playing the role that they see being cast in front of them. And in a lot of cases, they can't get to where that person is so they go there in a relative compensatory way or two you never wanted to be where that person is anyway because that's the other thing when you look at some that's why so for us we're very conscious about you know how much rotation we're going to do and how much rotational mobility we're going to develop we're very conscious i think in general you can't have too much hip mobility but i also know that you can like if you look at some yoga people you know if you see some yogi who can put his legs behind his head and get himself in a suitcase, that's not good. That means you've destroyed joint integrity in your hips that you can never get back. And that's what's cool about the PRI stuff is that they literally have, they define ranges like, okay, you need, you know, I think it's like 60 degrees of external rotation and 40 degrees of internal rotation and 120, 110 degrees of hip flexion and 10 degrees of hip extension. And if you start to get beyond those things, they're no longer beneficial. And they're, in fact, detracting. That was a big kind of takeaway for me from the first time I watched their myokinematics course. I thought, wow, they've actually defined, you know, when people say, well, how much is enough? I used to be like, eh. you know, pornography in the Supreme Court. We're not sure, but we'll know it when we see it kind of thing. And yet PRI put it right into, no, no here's the numbers. Like beyond this, probably not good. Beyond this, not good. Beyond this, not good. And I went. Okay, so I really shouldn't be trying to coach everybody to be able to do a split. Although at some point I thought that would be great if we worked at that. And then I realized, no, that wouldn't be great. So now I almost have that process of if you're really mobile, I don't encourage you to do mobility work. I was like, I tell those people like, hey, when we're doing our mobility work, just kind of go through the motions. Like don't actually try to – like my daughter's hypermobile. My daughter is one of these kids who could always do a split. And, you know, can do almost do a Chinese split. And, you know, she's got, you know, elbows that hyperextend and her shoulders are really loose jointed. And I know that that's not good. So I don't encourage her. Like, I'm like, don't do the mobility stuff. Do the stability stuff and stay away from the mobility stuff because you are in that small group of people, which generally encompasses figure skaters, dancers, martial artists, like we've got this sort of small micro group of people who don't need more mobility. But our, our big gen pop group needs a shitload more, <laughs> you know, so we've got to sort of, but yet we still need to paint with a broad brush in the sense that if we're doing group exercise, 
So that's one of the things we've really strived to really make our group exercise stuff really, really super high quality. And it's working. I'm curious your opinion in relation to um, using ice for rehab, you know, like Dr. Merkin, the rice, rest ice, blah, blah, blah. I'm a big ice believer. You be are. I am, yes. Merkin and, disagrees with himself. Amongst other, so what's, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Uh, my, ice works. <laughs> I think one of the things you realize is you don't go away from something that works because somebody else tells you it doesn't work. We've been using ice for 30 years. Like I, I have a, a bulging disc in my neck. So I've had, that's what I said. So I've had two injections, which I'm not an injection person, but I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. I'd gotten to the point where I was getting up in the middle of the night and icing and foam rolling. And one of the things I realized was that the only relief I got were oral anti-inflammatories and ice. Mm-hmm. And other people said, oh, try heat. And I was like, I tried heat. It didn't work as good. And people that I knew in the physical therapy world said, yeah, try ice. It works better for nerve pain. And I tried ice and it did. Right. So I'm kind of like, you know, even though I might look and say, oh, well, you know, there's guys that say ice doesn't work. I'm like, whatever. Then tell them how to use it. But, um, you know, same thing with, you know, people. I, oh, yeah. You know, I injured my, sprained my ankle, but I don't ice anymore. Well, you should because your ankle's going to blow up like a freaking balloon. <laughs> you know, and we've been using ice forever to prevent swelling. Yeah. And we've been using ice forever for pain relief. So, I think because one of the things you realize too is that you see the pendulum swing so regularly, especially when you're 56. Like I said, you know, I've been through the nutritional pendulum three full swings. When I started out, it was high protein diets, and then it went high carb diets, and then we had the Barry Sears zone thing. It went back to high protein diets, Sears, Atkins. Then it kind of swung back to carb. Now it's back to protein, and all of these people swore that they had research to back up what they were doing, right? We've gone through um, Cybex, Nautilus, I mean every transmutation possible of machinery to try to make free weights obsolete. Where are we right now, 35 years later? Free weights. Yeah. Yeah. So I've become a very big believer in try things and if they work, don't let someone tell you that they don't. And that's what happens to us in our field. Somebody comes along, that doesn't work. And a bunch of people go, oh, you're right. It doesn't work. You know, it's kind of like the sky is falling thing, chicken little. You're like, well, actually, no, the sky is not falling. We're all here. I haven't got hit by anything. Everything is going to be fine. So I think that's where we need to have our own. It's like with stretching. We stopped stretching for a long time because of all the like stretching decreases power research because people said, oh, if you stretch, you're an idiot. If you stretch your athletes, you know, they're going to be slower. They're going to be less explosive. Last thing I wanted in the world was for my athletes to be slower and less explosive. So we went to all kind of dynamic warm-up stuff. And what I found was that one thing clearly happened. Way more of my athletes got hurt. Mm. And every time I took them to somebody like you, any kind of therapist, one of the things that people said is, well, this is blank is too short. We need to stretch that. And I started to look and think, why is it that everybody who's hurt needs to stretch, but I'm not having anybody else stretch? And then I always said, you know, you go through this sort of logical process of, well, wait a second. Maybe I'll just have everybody stretch before they get hurt. Won't that be smart? Just like we used to do before. So now we static stretch every day before the workouts. Mm-hmm. And we have, and our injury rate is like zero. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I, had girls, I had a girl the other day. I had a girl the other day jump. Vertical jump 30 inches. 
27 years old, whose vertical jump was 18 five years ago. She's increased her vertical jump by a foot. That's a lot of vertical jump, right? right? She stretches, static stretches every day. Hmm. She's never been hurt. And she's increased her power output by something in the neighborhood of 66%. That's tough to argue with, especially when some guy says, oh, Oh, you can't do that. You know, you're gonna it's gonna decrease your power output. I'm like, actually I have the data, and the data says, and then if I look at unilateral power, she's at like a hundred percent increase. Her like we do right plus left combined vertical jump to look at bilateral deficit, she's at 40 inches. She can vertical jump 20 on her right, 20 on her left. Her bilateral vertical jump when we started was less than 20. It seems like it's, you know, so I have a lot of different people with a wide range. So a lot of things you're saying right now are things that I've been preaching the opposite of, <laughs> just so, which is fine. I completely respect you and hopefully, you, have, you know, you're whatever, but you respect me, whatever. <laughs> but I, I love having this conversation because it's like I do this with talking with nutrition people as well. You know, there's a lot of really healthy vegetarians out there. There's a lot of really healthy carnivores out there. There's a lot of, you know we become dogmatic with our movement practice, with our, you know, with our religion, with our, with our nutrition. And we get lost, I think in this box. And then it's like, we have people like you. It's like, well, we're doing something totally different, you know, and, and we're kicking ass. It's like, it's refreshing actually to hear. Well, I think I always say to people, what I want people to do in that case, like with you, like we say, oh, I'm doing things completely different. Is I always say, go back. Cause what I found with me, sometimes when I went back to my why, I realized that my why was because somebody else had told me not to do it. It wasn't really based on anything that I had done. It was more, oh, so-and-so who I'm really influenced by doesn't believe in that anymore. And then I started looking at that and going, is that really a good reason? Or do I need to look into that further? And that's why, like I said, that whole functional strength coach six thing, start with why I did, was all based on really looking at the whys, looking at static stretching, looking at the research, looking you know at things and saying why why do we do things that people think are are different or unconventional or not in line with current thinking whatever that might be and then try to explain that to people from a very scientific standpoint not from a opinion standpoint or not because you know my guru of the month says that you don't do this anymore and i think that's where a lot of people have got sucked in because they they become part of the cult of somebody and then decide that, you know, that person, my guru doesn't do that anymore. So I don't do that anymore. The, argu- the argument with it, with the ice thing is that it's, you know, it's our, our lymphatic system and our ability to, to drain that fluid is what actually like long-term moves the inflammation, moves the fluid and ice could potentially cause more restriction around the area. Obviously is going to, is going to numb the nerve cells a bit. So you're going to have temporary relief. So if you got to get back in the game or go to sleep, really helpful tool to have. But I think sometimes we can get lost and just like, you know, wrapping the knee up with ice and just, you know, sitting in a dysfunctional, broken, hyperkyphotic position, watching ESPN for two hours and think that we're healing. Right. Do you, and I would agree. I think you, you know, you don't ice, generally speaking, you don't ice chronic pain. Right. You know, my general rule of thumb would be you heat chronic pain. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But when you think, but that's like, but then people get, but I don't use ice anymore. Or if you have an acute tendonitis, if you have someone who says, my knee just started to get sore, yeah. ice is going to be helpful. 
What do you think of compressions, hot, cold compressions, elevation, moving, you know, I mean, massage, all, all that stuff? All the above. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got um, the, you know, I can't think of the, um, nor, you know, Normatec boots. We've got all that stuff. I mean, all that stuff works. I think it's all, um, it's the application. It's Again, it's back to the why. What are, you know, what are we trying to do? Because I think that's what you have to look at. I, I mean, I've become a huge compression believer just through my own. I had knee surgery a couple, I've had like three knee surgeries over the years, just kind of meniscal junk wearing out. And the third one, I really stayed with the sleeve they gave me, the compression sleeve. And I couldn't believe when I took it off how bad I felt. So I kept putting it back on. And then I, I wore both of them. They gave me two. I'd wear two at a time. And then I started wearing compression tights. And I wore them for three months because I always felt better with them on. I always felt worse when I took them off. And I said, okay, I'm a believer. Even though before I would have always said, you know, you could put a freaking compression sock on your head, probably get the same effect. But now I look at things. And one of the things I've become famous for is looking at stuff and saying, you know something? I was wrong about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people don't want to do. People are afraid to look stupid. Whereas I think that's what's called looking smart. You know, when someone says to me, you know, why did you change your mind? I said, I did something crazy. I read a book. <laughs> I learned. I talked to somebody smarter than me. And then I analyzed what they said. Yeah, that's, so, yeah. that's the danger with going to, to group classes and things of that nature is oftentimes you'll get an instructor of whatever sort answering questions for 20 different people and their egos on the line, you know, so they'll give you an answer. Regardless, you know, but I think that the best teacher that we can trust is someone that can genuinely is confident enough to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look into that deeper, but it's, or I look at that and say, I was wrong about that. Here's what we used to do. We don't do it anymore. Right. And we were, I was wrong. Like there was a time when I thought that was the case. I don't think that's the case anymore. Here's what made me change my mind. Yeah. And again, I think, I think intelligent people get that. Um, the, just the last thing I wanted, I wanted to ask was, um, if there were some kind of like archetypal movement positions that every functional modern human being should be able to embody or, you know, occupy, is there some kind of like recipe of movements that everyone should be cultivating in your opinion? I think everybody should be able to split squat. Everybody should be able to do a one leg straight leg deadlift. Everybody should be able to body weight squat. Everybody should be able to do a push up. It may be an inclined push-up, but they should be able to, as you said, organize their system and utilize their extensors. Everybody should be able to do some sort of ring row or TRX row or something. Like I'm a very like push-pull, knee-dominant, hip-dominant person in the sense that you should be able to control these basic movement patterns. And then you know, it's like, hey, everybody should be able to run. Everybody should be able to skip. There's all you know. They, I could go on forever about things that everybody should be able to do. I was, everybody should be able to paddle a canoe. They should be able to paddle a kayak. They should be able to use a stand-up paddleboard. You know what I mean? Like there's all these. Like with my son, my 11-year-old just learned to wakeboard the other day. There's. I think everybody should have as much movement literacy as we can possibly provide them in as broad an area as possible. So, like I said, when you look at our adult clients, our warm-ups. We skip, we lateral skip, we crossover skip, we shuffle, we karaoke. You know, we're trying to literally develop a movement literacy that was probably lost somewhere in elementary school for most of us. Cool. How do people find find uh, the the new book, the old books, your 
website. The new was, book is on Amazon. It's called New Functional Training for Sports. If you go on Amazon and type in New Functional Training for Sports, it'll pop up. It actually does a, probably a better job of explaining a lot of what I talked about today than I've done, but uh, it's all in there because it's it's been out for two months and I probably only finished it six months ago. So it's a very kind of current state of the affairs right now for me. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate no, no, probably coming on. I love doing these things. I could talk all day, but I just started realizing I'm like, my wife's outside. No, no worries. No worries. I'm in here yapping away on Skype with you. If you ever make it out to uh, Northwest or like yeah, and just, you know, West in general, hit me up. I'd love to, love to link up and awesome. continue. Right. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate See it. See you, man. Ciao. See you. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show, and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body as well. Be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening, and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one, and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.